Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. All right, Jack. One, two. One, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. If you're not facing your mortgage issues, this can be the most terrifying sound in the world. It means you've fallen behind. It means hope is dwindling. It means you're another call closer to losing your home to foreclosure. Fortunately, there's hope. If you need real help and guidance, call 1-888-995-HOPE. That's 1-888-995-4673. Because nothing is worse than doing nothing. A public service announcement brought to you by NeighborWorks, the Act Council, and this station. You're walking alone on the street. A group of people is hanging out just ahead of you. Hey, yo, where you going? Come here. As you approach them, they immediately surround you, taunting you. One of them attacks you. Before you know it, you're being robbed. You're a victim of a pack robbery, a robbery involving a group of assailants. In times like these, pack robberies are becoming more of a threat to our communities. These groups steal and are often more violent. Protect yourself from becoming the victim of a pack robbery. Avoid groups that are loitering or hanging out. Plan a safe, well-traveled route. Avoid desolate or poorly lighted areas. Be aware of your surroundings and the people around you. Don't be afraid to cross the street or avoid an oncoming group. Trust your instincts if you feel unsafe. To learn more about protecting yourself from pack robberies, visit ncpc.org or contact your local law enforcement agency. A message from the U.S. Department of Justice, National Crime Prevention Council, and the Ad Council. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, it would start pretty normal, like this. But, but then, then right, right, right around here, her life would take a bad turn with her mother abusing her. And about this far in, Nikki would drop out of high school and run away. Yeah, she'd be forced to work two jobs struggling to support herself and her daughter. She'd feel stuck, stuck, stuck. But then she'd decide to earn her GED diploma. She'd take my prep classes. Study every night and feel unstuck. Because she finally hears someone say, Nikki Baker, come up and get your GED diploma. If this radio spot were Nikki Baker's life, the ending wouldn't be the ending at all. It would be the beginning of a brighter future. For free info about GED test prep classes, call 1-877-38-YOUR-GED or visit yourged.org. GED is a registered trademark of the American Council on Education. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Oh, when he was a 
Hey. 
on Jam Radio 2.1. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you this early in the morning. First of all, I say thank you. Lay it down.
Once again, thanks for listening to us. We'll be back in the top of the hour for more midday music on the early morning gospel program. Morning inspirations here on Talk Welcome to the Shepherd's Grove Podcast. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please visit us at shepherdsgrove.org. Okay, a few things. Uh, Number one, uh, you may notice the hot tub time machine over here. Uh, This this is not a hot tub, although the water is quite warm. This is a baptismal. So uh, very often, sometimes in this church, we've done baptism by sprinkling, and other times we do the, you know, classic old school, not for babies, but, you know, old school for, for adults. So 
um, I just want to throw out there that after the sermon, uh, we're going to have a baptism. And we have a number of people that will be baptized, but we're also going to have spontaneous baptism. So if you're here today and, um, and you get the unction and you want to be baptized, we're going to invite you. I believe we have some towels left. We may not. I make no promises, do we? They're in the dryer? That's amazing. So they'll be out here in 20 minutes. All right, well, we're going to do our best. So we'll have towels and shirts, and you're going to have about 20 minutes to think about whether or not you want to do something awesome today, which is more than just, you know, hunting for eggs and eating ham if you want to come. So uh, anyway, so I want you to think about that, and if your stomach is even churning and you're sort of thinking maybe this is something for me, then I would encourage you that maybe the Holy Spirit is nudging you in the direction to be baptized today on Easter and to seal your life uh, for his kingdom. Um, so many of you know my grandfather. I have a famous preacher grandfather named Robert Schuler, who really began in many ways the seeker-sensitive movement in America. He, many of the, the methods that have been applied, love, take it or leave it to the megachurch. Churches were started by my grandfather. He mentored a couple of no-names like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and... Uh, He's had a huge influence on, you know, huge pastors, and he passed away on Thursday. And it was, uh, our whole family has been grieving. And I, I was thinking about, you know, um, this church is, is in large part the, part of the congregation that he fostered the Christian Cathedral. I was even wondering, like, what would my grandpa say? And I was, yesterday I was, you know, on Easter three or four days after such a, you know, mammoth person has died. And yesterday I was walking at the ranch. And uh, I don't know if you know my grandpa. I, I would just say, I, I just kind of said it out loud, like to the sky or something, like I was in. Grandpa, what would you say? And this is exactly what I thought he would say. And he would look to the church and he would Don't you dare go in there with a negative attitude. Attitude is everything. He would say, I built my church on Norman Vincent Peale and good Easter services. You make those people feel positive. <laughs> I said, uh, I was thinking like, tell them I chose a wonderful day to change my hospital robes for robes of glory, to change hospital food for dining with a king, and let them know I am more awake and alive than I have Ever been. Amen, huh? And that, that really is the good news today on Easter is that, is, is that there is a promise for baptism. That you know, nobody can be perfect. You know, nobody can be just like Jesus. And the great thing about the gospel message, it's not our righteousness uh, that the Lord sees. It's his righteousness. God sees when he looks at us and invites us, um, not on our own righteousness, but the righteousness There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. God does the, the saving. All you do is, all you have to do is say yes, and there is this promise of eternal life. All right, so I want to talk just briefly about Easter. For many Christians, they don't know why Easter is so important. Uh, maybe because it's like the coolest miracle Jesus ever did or something. Or maybe it's the the cherry on top. In truth, Easter is 
the Easter is the uh, the promise that what Jesus said was true, and in fact was the first time that someone actually got to live in what Jesus promised. In other words, um, because Jesus died in his normal body and was raised to life, we can believe that the promise that he makes to us who will someday die is true. All right. All that is to simply say that you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. In academia today, there are sort of two views of your life. One, and let's say time, for example, last year I used a toilet paper, I think, in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> it's Easter. I've always worn a suit on Easter, even in the olden days. All right. So, uh, so what is the length of your life? Uh, many people want to convince you, let's say, that the whole of your life, if you live to be 80 years old, for example, or 88, my grandfather, let's break that down into 12 inches, and that we have this. We have 12 inches. This is the whole of our life. What we do begins here, and it ends there. And when it ends there, that is it. As Kierkegaard said, we would be like a stone thrust at the water, skipping upon the surface until we lose momentum, only to sink to 100,000 fathoms of nothingness. And this is a view that many take, and this is a view that becomes more and more popular um, every year. But the resurrection, what Jesus claims, is that, in fact, this is not the whole of your life, but, in fact, it's the beginning of your life. What Christianity asserts is that life is much more like a uh, measuring tape, thank you, Jim Case, that just goes and goes and goes for quite a long time. In fact, it goes on for eternity. This is the symbol. Uh, <laughs> this is the symbol of what we believe. But the, the difference is, for us as believers, we think that this 12 inches that we have matters as well, but that the rest of this measuring tape is going to be defined by what we do with the 12 inches we're given. What will you do with your life? I believe that these two very opposing views, that life is either eternal uh, or that life is 12 inches long, dramatically change the behavior of one who believes one or the other. If you believe this 12 inches is all you have and that it's gone after that, you will not be as altruistic, as loving, as caring, or as thoughtful. You will be less likely to give your life as a sacrifice for someone else. You will be more likely to pursue, pursue selfishness and pursue your own aims. After all, this is all you've got. And so maximize pleasure and minimize pain because this is it. Probably the worst thing of all is that this kind of existence is, is one that is saturated with dread and fear. It takes all of your power to be a Jesus kind of person. When in fact, if we believe that instead, that all of eternity will depend on how we act in these 12 inches, from that you get a very different kind of person, a person with an eternal perspective who now can do uh, things more than they, beyond what they, they ever thought they could do. 
And so I believe that your view of space-time definitely affects your behavior. And the great thing about Easter is that this idea that Jesus presents, that eternal life is given to us who believe, uh, that, that the resurrection validates that claim. Uh, if a guy is raised from the dead, you, you're going to probably listen to what he has to say about death and life. Am I right? Can I get an amen? And so the first thing I want to say before we even talk about the resurrection story is, is just the fact that, um, that many of us have discredited the scriptural witness because we believe that these first century Jewish Christians were somehow uneducated, backwater, superstitious pagans. And I just want to begin from an academic standpoint to just say that that is not a valid claim at all. First century Jews who wrote these documents that later become the books of the Bible, the account of what they saw, were very intelligent, very smart men. First of all, education has always been a center part to Judaism, as we know today. How many, uh, we have any, oh, never mind, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but we know, right? I mean, if you know any Jewish families, you know that education is important. And, uh, and it was true that, as well in the first century. More than that, uh, the first century Jews had been Hellenized for 300 years, meaning that they had available to them a culture and an education that wasn't available to a lot of other ancient Near Eastern cultures. The Greeks were brilliant. <coughs> Contrary to popular belief, the Greeks knew the world was, was round. In fact, Pythagoras was able to measure the circumference of the earth 500 years uh, before Jesus ever, ever came. Um, these Jews would have been, all of them would have been literate. Some of them would have been trained in logic, reason, skepticism, um, Greek philosophy, Western thought. They, would have made their, they could have made their argument to you in four different languages. Pick, take your pick, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. How many languages do you speak, by the way? And see, that's the point, is that very often... We think that these guys are just some backwater slums when, in fact, many of these men were spending most of their time debating philosophical, theological ideas and poring over things like geometry, calculus, engineering, architecture, and Greek Western philosophy. They were not dumb. These men knew that dead people don't just get raised from the dead. Can I get an amen? This is important because very often as Western thinkers, we don't think that people didn't believe in miracles until Voltaire came along, who believed in God, by the way. <laughs> in fact, if you were to ask most people in pop culture, who's the smartest human who would ever live, most people would say Einstein. That's right. But if you were to ask people in ac academia who's the smartest person who's ever lived, very often you're going to get the name Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was one of the most gifted, brilliant minds uh, who's ever lived. And Isaac Newton, uh, who basically designed our, our most of our modern ideas of physics, uh, Isaac Newton wrote more on religion than he did on, on science. Newton actually wrote a systematic theology and was a dedicated Christian. Why do I say all this? I say all of this because of the onslaught in the Western world against the idea that a man actually could have been raised from the dead. Of course a man's not supposed to be raised from the dead. But there were hundreds of witnesses who were educated, who were smart, who were not easily fooled, and all of them saw what happened and documented it. 
It's rational to believe that this actually heart goes out in many ways to the disciples because it's, it's, it's a horrible feeling when nobody believes you. There's a story that um, there's a guy who was eating a hamburger and Bill Murray came up to him and he just looked at him like this and he took a french fry and just started eating it and then he looked at him and said, nobody will believe you and then walked away. <laughs> I felt that way before too. I've witnessed a handful of miracles in my, my own life. And actually, the first few years of my ministry, to my own shame, I wouldn't share those miracles because I wanted to reach people for Christ, and I didn't want to be discredited by the miracles. I realized that if I shared these miracles that I witnessed with my life, I would present to my audience one of a number of choices. Either I'm stupid, either I'm insane, I am a little insane. If I'm stupid, I'm insane, uh, uh, I'm a liar, or I'm telling the truth. And so many people are caught in the arrogant idea that we have figured everything out, that, that because of that, that there really are no such things as miracles, that God doesn't exist. And what I'm here to tell you, friends, is that the things I have seen are hard. You know, we, we pray, we, one time we prayed for rain in a place that hadn't rained for three months and it started raining. Um, I, I was told by a doctor that I had that I was suffering from chronic deafness, my ear was going away, and someone prayed for me, and I, and I was healed. One of the most amazing, there was a, in Thailand, there was a man who hadn't walked for 10 years, and he asked us to pray for him, and we didn't even start praying. The second we touched him, he sprung up and started shouting something in Thai. We have no idea what it was, and he started running, screaming this, this thing. Everybody there is looking at us. I mean, and, and the problem is that you know, again, when I tell those stories, now you're given a choice. You have to just decide, what did that happen? And, and if you believe that it happened, it starts to change your worldview. It starts to change the way you think even about yourself, that maybe you don't have all the answers. And here's the other thing, is that hundreds of people saw this. Even though we have only a handful of witnesses, there are a number of documents of people who made claims about what they saw Jesus do. In fact, Jesus constantly had... Thousands of people walking with him. Obviously, he was doing something pretty cool. That we can be sure of. What was he doing? These educated, smart, um, even some of them probably skeptical witnesses. Luke was a Greek doctor. He wasn't even Jewish, by the way. Um, made these claims. They said that this rabbi came along, and the first thing he started doing, aside from just preaching, was he just started walking around healing people. Leprosy, boom. Uh, then, um, and I don't know why this story is so moving to me. There is a story where there are two demon-possessed men, the demons in them or whatever, they, they shout out and they go, Son of God, what are you doing here? Like they recognize him as like, He's not supposed to be here. What is the king doing here? And they say, what, have you come to torment us? Our time has not come yet, has it? They noticed Jesus. And it, there was like this attitude like, he's, he's not supposed to be here. The time hasn't come yet for our judgment. I don't know why that story is so moving to me. And they continue to see him do crazy things, like he raised two people from the dead. 
And uh, he continues to do it like the transfiguration where they're sitting on a mountain with him and some fog rolls in and God starts talking to Jesus. And it says the disciples, Elijah and Moses come and the disciples are so terrified that Peter says, Lord, let's build three altars, one for you, one for uh, uh, Moses, and one for Elijah. And then the writer says, because Peter was so afraid, he just felt like he had to say something. (laughs) Jesus is raised from the dead, which is great news. And and his crucifixion and resurrection then, I think, the main thing to remember is just that his promises, that if we believe in him, we would have eternal life. And so let's claim. It tells us we don't have to worry if we trust in him. It tells us that this world is a bit like a theater. Someday we'll pull the curtain back and see what the universe is really like. The way we live in this life last point I want to make is just that in those 40 days that after, that after Jesus was raised from the dead, very often we think, oh, he was raised from the dead, goodbye. No, he was raised from the dead. He saw hundreds of people. He was hanging out with them for 40 days, and they were, like, fishing and sitting by a campfire talking and having meals together. And he begins to give them instruction about where he's going and what he's doing. And this is the best part, and this is what matters for you and for me. Uh, is that after that he gives them his Holy Spirit and they are completely empowered and they're able to do all the stuff that Jesus does. Because Jesus lives, we can live. Because Jesus lives, we can have the confidence that we don't have to worry about tomorrow, we don't have to worry about our future, we don't have to worry about our death. Some of you ripple in your own Some of you, so hard sometimes to make right decisions to be good and to do good because you are so afraid that this is all you have. Some of you, that leads into a secret. Uh, sometimes the decisions you regret, the things you hate. And so many of us are torn, crippled by fear. We fear that those that we love who have died will never see them again. I want to say that again. Jesus is still alive today doing stuff. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. Live a life for God and for others. He will keep you safe. He treasures you. It's good news for us, for anyone who has lost anyone in life, because what it means is that um, there is a great cloud of witnesses that incorporates members of your family, some of whom you've never even met. I suppose we have a great uncle somewhere who was a judge that played nine instruments. That guy's rooting for me. Like, that's good news that my grandparents and my great-grandparents, my, 
Uncle Henry Beltman, who was a missionary in China, and others who have gone to be with the Lord, I believe are a part of this great cloud of witnesses who are watching us saying, yeah, go, go, Bobby, go. You know, that, and the same for you, that you have members of your family who knew the Lord, who have gone to be with him, who are right now watching your life, rooting for you, hoping you'll listen to this message, hoping that you'll change your life, hoping that your life will be different, hoping that you will remember that this 12 inches means a million other inches, and it changes the way those other inches will be in your existence and the existence for others. Your life is not an island. Your life is connected to my life and every other life on earth. The way you spend your life will affect eternity. The moment we think that we are all alone and all we have is this, this one little bit, God has called us. Your little life is bigger than you think, and your life matters more. Until you get to heaven, you won't even be able to see the impact, the, the, the waves that were caused by the way you lived your life. The choices you make matter to God, and they matter to me. I want you to know that you don't have to be afraid, that you don't have to be worried. Because Jesus lives, you can live true freedom. treasures you, his stamp upon your life. Welcome to the Shepherd's Grove podcast. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please visit us at shepherdsgrove.org. Today we're finishing the series, uh, Follow the Rabbi, in which we've been studying the Jewishness of Jesus. I extended it one week because I took out one of the sermons when Tony Campolo was here, and uh, to be honest with you, I needed a one-off, so I just extended it. did I? Wow. So uh, today we're talking, I wanted to finish with this one idea, and it's very simply the idea that the, one of the pur- ultimate purposes of every disciple is to become a rabbi. That making disciples is a part of. Uh, I, I'm, I, I, the, the point of the message today is very simply this that we as believers ought to, in some way, share our faith with others. About 10 years ago, there was a, a movement that was active across the U.S. and part of the U.K. called the Emerging Church Movement. It sort of still exists, but it sort of fizzled out. Most of you are probably not familiar with it. I was quite involved with it, and I, I always think of it as a, as a raw stock of corn. Like, it came with good stuff and, and bad stuff. Like, you had to peel away, you know, some things and keep other things. But one of the negative things that came from sort of the mid-2000s in, in Christianity in general was the cool factor. There was, like, this new thing that, like, especially by 2004, 2005, Many, if not most, churches were working towards being cooler. You know, 
and I and and not that there's anything to be wrong with that, and I, I know we could be branded that way too. Totally is super cool. Everybody in the band is really cool. I'm working on it, you know. We, you know, the, the thing is, we we in doing that, I think we lost some things. One of the things I think we lost was the desire of the church to share our faith. Like let's let's to to actually be proactive as believers. In, in talking to people about our faith. And I do think that, that maybe the good of that was we could probably look at healthier ways of sharing our faith. But in the end, there's this coolness piece where it's like, well, I just want to be cool around people. God has called you to do. Keep in mind, I'm preaching to a mirror, right? So, like, I did this too. You know? And I, I just want to begin there. The importance of sharing our faith as believers. It's not optional. It's a part of being a disciple is making disciples. I'll never forget the first person I brought to faith. It was actually an accident. And uh, I, I went to a party, and, and uh, it was like one of those parties you're not supposed to go to, and I decided I was going to go and try and do some good. I ended up sitting and talking with this girl. I think I was 16 or 17. And she was uh, addicted she had an abusive boyfriend. She was dabbling in the occult. And I just told her my story about how I had this, uh, this personal, deep personal con- uh, conversion in faith. And by the end of it, she said, I want that. And I prayed with her to become a Christian. And by the way, she later became a youth pastor in Oklahoma. Which but she got plugged into her church and her whole life turned around. But I remember leaving that experience feeling so overjoyed. I, it was the, the most awesome feeling ever. I mean, scriptures allude to this image of you know angels celebrating in heaven whenever someone makes a you know a, a decision to become a, a disciple of Jesus. But for me, I, I felt it. It's like I could feel the angels celebrating. And there were months there where I w- I got radical in in my uh, going to peop- you know the rough and tumble of my school, which had 2,000 students, by the way, and it had 1,000 per class. It was just juniors and seniors. And um, I, just, I just became really active in that. And, and out of it got such a deep sense of joy uh, and meaning. And my fear is that many of us who are dedicated in our faith, we are, we're dedicated in our prayer life, we, we attend church regularly, we are involved in small groups, everything. Um, <laughs> that there is this missing piece of the true joy that comes when you actually get to be a part of someone else's spiritual journey. It's a, to make a difference. So because it's a rabbi piece, let's talk about the Jewish part of this. First of all, um, the disciples, we talked about the mode of discipleship, the mode for rabbis. Typically in Jesus' day, rabbis, um, were famous, they were super important in culture, and they were always waiting for people to come to them. They always wanted the best of the best, the brightest, the best looking. You know, they wanted the Harvard to come to them. And Jesus was different than those guys because he went after the lowly, the unexpected, the underdogs. So he went after fishermen, and he went after you know, the blue-collar, everyday guy. And he even went after like prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and Samaritans, people that were total religious rejects, people that were even viewed as evil, Jesus went after them and said, you can become my disciple. And the reason that was so powerful is because when someone called a disciple, be, and this is what you need to hear, okay? 
being a disciple was essentially entering into an educational program. Anyone who confessed that they were Jesus' rabbi had in their mind, I am in training to become a rabbi. And the reason that's important is that for us as believers, you may not be at a place yet where you feel like you're ready to do that, but one of the ultimate goals of you being a disciple of Jesus is to become a rabbi yourself, to become someone who teaches, uh, who teaches Jesus' way to others. And, of course, in a setting like this, we seem to be a church that really reaches people who've been burned by religion for whatever reason. We never set that out as a vision. It was never like a vision statement. We were never like, we're going to help. But I've heard that a lot. A lot of people are just kind of like done with church or kind of coming back to church and found a safe place in this church. And, and so for a lot of you, when I'm talking about sharing your faith, there's a lot of baggage there. When I talk about, you know, you know, sharing some kind of faith with your neighbor, I mean, you just think, oh, Bobby, you know, I, I, it's not really proselytizing really isn't my thing. Um, a lot of times we get these images in our head of the guy on the corner with the you know, megaphone and the signs, the Westboro Baptist kind of looking people. Sometimes we get, uh, we get these uh, images of a crazy uncle or crazy friend who was just like over the top this way about like passing out tracks and like, I'm not going to leave a tip. I'm going to leave a track that looks like a $5 bill, and you're going to open it and say, disappointed? God's disappointed in you. You know, those types of things, you know. And, and, uh, and so we get, we, it kind of invokes some of these images that we think, I don't want to be like this guy or that guy who were extremely bold in the way that they shared their faith but seemed to be unproductive or, or uh, at worst, were, were harmful. I just want to start by saying that is not at all even what Jesus or, or the disciples were doing. In fact, even when you see some of the pictures of like Paul preaching on a street corner, that was normal back then. It's not normal anymore. Back then it was normal. That's how people would share news. They didn't have newspapers, right? They didn't have, you know, um, whatever, CNN or whatever. They had a guy on a corner that shared today's news. And so it was very common for speakers to get up and share news, especially the good news. And so that's not probably what you're called to do. And, and, yet, and, and yet we are called to be disciple makers. It's not an option. It's not like a spiritual gift. It's something that everyone is supposed to do. And I think the reason this matters is because it, if, if the church became passionate about making disciples and inviting people into this journey, Everyone, like if every believer did, like every believer saved, shared with one person a year, the whole world would hear the gospel every year. I mean, it'd be amazing. I mean, you'd, you would have um, people that would hear the gospel in some form over and, and over and over. And the amazing thing about that is that if a person really does take a 180-degree turn in their life, like this girl, you know, I, I think God called me to be there. Maybe if I didn't do it, someone else would have her, she was probably ready, but you think about how by changing just that one girl's life from, from addiction and abuse to entering into something new that was life-giving, I probably, you know, I didn't, but God changed. I had a part in seeing, like, you know, who she marries and her kids and the way she treats her family, what kind of job she has, the way she spends the rest of her life, especially being 16, the whole life ahead of her, you think that not only affects her life, it's going to affect her kid's life, her grandkids' life. There's just waves of influence that are indirectly caused by your one meeting, by your one chance. 
And so that's the thing is, you know, like many of us, we want to be, we want to be world changers. We want to be history makers. But in truth, it's very often it's probably more about your ego than it is about making a difference for God. Because if you could see from heaven, by changing that one girl's life, you're not, people aren't going to give you credit for changing the world, but from heaven you'd be able to see the waves of influence, the thousands of lives through history that could be impacted by that one person being changed. So if it's not about ego for you, and you really do want to change the world, and you don't care about getting credit, change the world one person at a time. And, and, and leave the results to God. And trust Him with them. Change the world one person. Today we're going to read through Matthew chapter 13. You can open your iPhones to Matthew 13, verse uh, Uh, so, Matthew 13 is a very famous chapter in Matthew because it's the famous uh, Kingdom of Heaven chapter in which Jesus uses a lot of this apocalyptic language about how things are going to be in the end. Uh, he talks about the Word of God, you know, it falls, some will fall on hard soil, some will fall on the rocks. Some will fall among thorns, and some will fall in good soil, and it will produce a harvest. Um, the word of God is like a seed that falls into a field, and wheat starts to grow, but the enemy comes and plants weeds with it. And then on the time of harvest, the, the, the farmer says, let them both grow together. And in the time of harvest, they were pulled, and the weeds will be burned, but the, the wheat will be stored, right? There's this apocalyptic imagery. He talks about uh, the treasure of great price, the, the pearl of great price, the treasure in a field. The fish pulled up in the nets, and some nets will be thrown, some fish will be thrown back, and some fish will be kept, etc. And so there's all of this judgment language, the sheep and goats kind of stuff about how, you know, some will be punished and some will be saved for eternal life. It's very, very heavy, even scary kind of stuff. And after Jesus finishes preaching with all of this, some very bright, some very dark imagery, he then stops and looks at his disciples. In 51, and he says, do you understand what I have told you? Like, he really wants to know that they're getting the fact that that all of this that they're doing has... ...back to them. He says, the teacher of Torah comes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, like the owner of a house who pulled new treasures as well. Brings out of a storeroom new treasures as well. This is what I want you to hear, that this is how Jesus, this is Jesus' answer to this apocalyptic language. of people into our spiritual home. This is super important. Hospitality in Jesus' day, you see it woven through all of these parables, the importance of hospitality. Hospitality was central, big time, to, to um, first century um, Middle Eastern, especially Jewish culture and religion. Like if you had a visitor, 
if you had an alien visiting you, if you had a, a, a friend, a, a, that, that treating the, the visitor, the traveler, the alien, the, the family uh, in your home with dignity, respect, comfort, health, that was considered a true righteousness. Much of the culture and much of your own family's honor was at stake that you be hospitable towards the weary traveler. In fact, the Middle East is still this way big time. The Muslim culture still really retains this, and it's actually a really wonderful thing about Muslim culture. When I was in the Jerusalem, and he was trying to explain this to me. I think I was like 20 or 20. I didn't quite get it. I was kind of afraid. You know, it was like around 9-11, and, you know, I had like all of this prejudice towards um, probably both racial and religious prejudice towards Palestinians. And, uh, we're, and even though I didn't recognize it, and as we're walking around, he's like, they're amazing. And he goes, let me show you something. It's so the old city of Jerusalem in the Arabic district. And he knocks on a door, and a Muslim man opens the door. John says something to him in Arabic. The man gets this warm look on his face, and he invites us into I guess it was some kind of tea or something. It was delicious. Food. You know, he's just welcoming us, talking to us. He starts pulling stuff out and cups and different things, all sorts of treasures, welcoming us in his home. And it was, for this man, I understood later when I took a course on Islam and, and Middle Eastern culture, that for this man it was his religious duty that he was honoring God by honoring Here's the thing. Judaism is exactly the same way in the first century. That, that hospitality was the... All of this to simply say, the mode of evangelism for a true disciple of Jesus is hospitality. Hospitality is the mode for evangelism for us who believe. In other words, inviting someone to become a Christian, inviting someone to the kingdom of God, is not shoving religion down people's throats, not making demands, not challenging, not being abrasive. Rather, it's the idea of being welcoming. Shove religion down people's throats. Rather, here, it's this idea that you invite people into your house, and you pull treasures, old and new, from your storehouse. Share with them. Now, a lot of us were like, oh, well, I don't have that many treasures. Right? I don't have a bunch of china. I don't have a 300-year-old Bordeaux in the wine cellar and a fine five-year-aged Gouda, which is... I've got Gatorade and Ritz crackers. That's what I have in my religious storehouse. You know what? I love Ritz crackers. And you know it. Look, whatever you've got to offer people, just share it. Share whatever treasures you have in your storehouse. It's not that you have to give some earth-shattering sermon. In fact, there's probably people in your life that someone like me, there's no way I could connect with them because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to be parsing the Greek all the time and doing, you know. That's, that's the thing is that everyone is so different, and there are people in your life that you are just uniquely designed to come alongside 
in a way to, to guide spiritually. And, 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 and I just want to just argue with anyone who says, look, I, I just became a Christian. You just baptized me last Easter. I, I'm a week old in this faith thing. Do you think I should do this? Absolutely. And the, one of the hardest things about being a Christian for years and years and years is that a lot of your friends start to become, like, you know, in your own faith, and you don't have, like, for me as a pastor, I don't have a lot of um, non-Christian friends. That drives me crazy, too, because when I was in business, it was like, I was always had the opportunity to be able to share and, and live around others. It's, it's, by becoming a pastor, I get to do the broad thing, but I don't get to be as specific sometimes with... Pastors sometimes miss out on the joy of sharing your faith with the, with the guy in the cubicle next to you. And an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives that guys like me will never have. Sharing your faith is, is like hospitality. Safe haven in your spirit. Don't make the mistake. You, you, you can't give what you don't have. In fact, if, if you don't have treasure to give, it's time to store up some treasure through life of prayer and worship and intimacy. With Don't be like the pastor who is a thirsty man hosing people down with a, a hose like the fountain that has many tears beautiful fountain you know what they look like those Spanish fountains little usually flower at the top and then you've got like the big bowl under that and the really big bowl and then the basin at the bottom that's how evangelism you should be overflowing you should be a splashy Christian that wherever you go you just kind of spill over a little bit onto people you know you don't want to hose them down but People get too close to you, they're going to get a little, you know, they're going to get splashed on a little bit. You know, you, you have something about your life that is that spills over. That's how it should be. In the Great Commission, Jesus says at the end of Matthew, he says, Go therefore into all the world. Um, he doesn't say preaching the gospel. What does he say? Making disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Now the word that 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 begins with, actually I had to write it down, aorist passive participle. Anybody want to translate aorist passive participle? Aorist passive participle would be not really therefore go, it would be like as you go. Having gone is probably the most accurate. The reason this is important is Jesus is not saying necessarily go and, and make disciples, but he's saying as you go, Right? Having gone, make disciples. Wherever you go, at any time of day, no matter where you are, make disciples. This is very much like Bobby's rule of 15 feet of space, right? That wherever you go, that 15 feet of space around you, no matter who's in it, you're called to do something, to make a difference, to share the gospel in whatever way you can with those people. I feel like still saying the phrase "share the gospel" is so has so much baggage for some of you because you. Just... So what I want to pr provide to you are there's many ways you can do this, but five things anyone in this room uh, can do to share their faith in the 15 feet of space around them. Are you ready? I'm not usually a list guy, but here's the top five things. If you're OCD, get your pen out. All right. <laughs> Number one, um, and this is probably one of the best things you can do. Works of love. 
true works of love. Most of us don't have time to practice works of love. Right? Our, our, our schedules are packed. Very, very important. Just don't have the time. Stop and notice those who need us. Works of love, especially if they're towards your enemies, uh, cannot go unnoticed by those who are around you. There is that person that works with you that is hard to love. Go after him or her. Love on them. Extra grace required, I know. Just go for it. Like mentoring people. Helping someone when you see they're in need. Babysit your neighbor's kids and buy them dinner. Works of love. These things do not go unnoticed. And they because nothing defines Christianity. Predators. Number two, uh, pray for others. When I say pray for others, I don't mean like, say, I'm going to pray for you and then go to your class. Something's going to happen, okay? You are going to be standing in line at Starbucks, and you're going to order a tall blonde, which is always so fun. Tall blonde. And, uh, <laughs> and, and as you order that, it's, the, the coffee will come. And maybe you know the guy or the gal. And he will say, John, you'll say, John, how are you doing? And he'll say, I'm okay. Anytime someone says, I'm okay, something's wrong. This is America. When someone asks you if you're okay, you say, I'm great. If something's horrible, like something really bad, you say, I'm okay. <laughs> That's how we are here. And if you're in line and you hear someone say, I'm okay, you're going to say, what's wrong? And they will tell you, and this is what I want you to say. Can I pray for you? It's going to be hard. It's going to come in the next five, six, or seven days. This will happen to you. Someone will tell you something bad in their life, you're going to remember that I told you to do this. You're going to hear that in, with the authority of Jesus that I told you this would happen and that you're supposed to say, can I pray for you? And you're going to have a decision to just keep your mouth shut and say, oh, I'm sorry, or, or I'll, I will pray for you, which is still a cop-out. And what I want you to say is, can I pray for you? And if you get it out, you might even just be like, pray for you? I, it, that's good enough. That's fine, as long as, you, as, long as you, you get it out. And you just watch what happens in that person's eyes when you say those words. Posture will change. They will say yes. I've never had anyone say no to me when I say, pray for atheists. All sorts. Everybody say 15 seconds. God, I pray for you. Need to give a dialogue? Just quick prayer. All right. That that will change that will change that person's paradigm. 
they will, for sure the rest of the day, maybe the rest of the week, be thinking about God and you and, and their sister and, and, and bigger things, especially if God causes a breakthrough in their lives and ends up healing their sister the same day or something. God does that kind of thing all the time for secular people. It's like, what is operandi, right? I mean, I, I, for whatever reason, probably because he's trying to win them over to the kingdom. All right. Number three, um, be a quiet, listening presence. Many of you are like me. You talk way too much. and you're. If someone is suffering or hurting in some way, major loss, loss of a loved one, got some bad news, don't be a doctor, don't be a counselor, don't try and fix things. Just sit with them and be quiet and ask questions from time to time. If you've ever been, you know, people that suffer from depression, that are just going through a really dark valley in their life, sometimes they just need to sit on the ottoman and rub their feet. Just need someone to sit by them. And ever been in a really dark time in your life? ever have the opportunity to do that for some Many of you, when I talk about your testimony, like how Jesus or how God has moved in your life, you think of the guy that was like, you know, I was on drugs, and then I killed a bunch of people, and then I went to jail, and then I found Jesus, and now I'm a pastor. Like, you, you know that story, right? <laughs> like, every Calvary pastor that exists seems to have that story for whatever reason. <laughs> I, I mean, like, and, and I know many of you are like, I don't have that story. I've been a Christian my whole life. Or, like, you know, my conversion was kind of like, you know, I, you know, I became a Christian. My life's great. You know I mean? Like, so you, you, you feel like when you hear that story, you don't, you don't feel like you have something to say, but think about how Christ has moved through your life even as, as a child. Think about what it would mean to cast a vision to even grow up in a Christian home, to say, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, and my parents weren't perfect, and things were not easy, but, you know, I could, one thing I could say is our faith made all the difference in the world. Sharing your story can really soften people, and it's often those types of stories that finally activate people to say, And number five, and anyone can do this. You say, you know, one through four, I'm not going to pray for somebody, all right? I'm not going to be a quiet listening presence. <laughs> you know, maybe it's just not you. Number five, and this is the easiest thing in the world, just invite people to church or to something. Invite them to, a, you know, if you go to a, an outreach um, for the homeless or something like that, just invite them. Um, you know, 90, and we've said this every, almost every Sunday, 90% of people that don't go to church would go at least once if a friend invited them. You know, invite someone to come to church. Take them to Javier's or something afterwards. You know, they'll, they'll probably say yes. And and just watch as even that can begin to open a door. Sometimes, especially if it's like a family member, they don't want to hear faith from you. They just don't. Sometimes you need a third party. And that's one thing that a church, like a church service, can be really helpful with. It's just you know, inviting someone here or something like that. You know, they, they kind of get it from a third source. Anyway, all of this to say, friends, that, that these are five possible ways that you can be rabbinic in your Christianity. Be a part of investing into the spiritual lives of people.
not all of us are called to do the same thing all the time. Some of us till the ground, some of us plant the seeds, some of us nurture the plant, and some of us harvest. And God will probably ask you to do all of those things at different times. The one, more than anything, I want you to get this in your head, that if you've never been a part of someone's spiritual life, you're missing out on incredible meaning and joy that you've There's something just so enriching and fulfilling and, and fun about being a part of someone else's journey and being available uh, in their own spiritual process. And, and God will bring many people in their lives. You don't, you, know, you don't have to be a crutch, but, but don't miss out on how awesome it is to be used by God when you're activated in the, the lives of, of people around you. Can you stand with me? We're going to uh, take of communion. Communion is a time of repentance and healing. I have eight people come forward to help us serve communion. Don't be tricked. The musicians aren't going to do it. They're just going to come. Dude, he's just walking right by us. We need seven more. <laughs> Can you imagine what it would have been like? Prostitute. Thought that God hated you and that you were a sinner. You had no place in the kingdom of God. And then someone like a Billy Graham. invites you to sit and eat. Jesus' day, the idea of eating with someone, and that you were calling them your brother and even your equal, telegraphs to these people who thought they were outside of the kingdom of God. Because that happened so many times, the church historically wove into its liturgy the practice of using faith and the imagination Remember that today, Jesus still invites us in all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all our woundedness and rejection. This is a sacred meal. It's not to be taken lightly. But also, don't think that it, because you've sinned, you can't do it. This is for sinners. This is for people who have messed up. You've had a bad week, you know. You just dropped the ball on your, you know, religious life somehow. This is for you. Medicine for, for sick people. So we're inviting everyone to come and to just say, Lord, I'm sorry, and to receive. As I raise the bread, I will say, Christ's body, and you. Christ's body. I will say, Christ's blood, and you will say, shed for the forgiveness. Christ's blood. Out like this is a sign of receiving. We are not worthy to eat it. Beloved children, come you. Just speak over this church. Your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. Wounds are healed.
Welcome to the Shepherd's Grove Podcast. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please visit us at shepherdsgrove.org. hadn't planned it this way, but it worked out uh, wonderfully in that the announcement was on last night's Hour of Power, and I start this morning because that week we were running a little late on exactly what we hoped for. Oftentimes, when a young guy like me steps into a position, given a desk and a file cabinet and told to figure it out, uh, that's not the case with me. And I am so thankful for And gentlemen, I am so very thankful to you all and indebted to you. So could we give them a hand? We're going to talk about trust. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. So proudly we 
you are listening to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 
on the series. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Block Radio. Turn it up.
you feel like giving up now. Your spot is tough now. But how can you learn if you don't fall? How can you walk if first you don't crawl? But through it all, you keep blessing me. While they pressing me. And they testing me. They keep stressing me. Because they never heard a preacher flow. Show. Go. No. There's my son. You've been in your room all morning. Hey, Dad. Um, Matt, what's wrong with your voice? There is nothing wrong with my voice. Oh, well, it's just sort of... I have been playing my video games and electronic games for so many hours. Uh-huh. Well, it sounds like it might be time for you to take a break or... Hello, Dad. Um, Susan? I have been watching TV and text messaging all morning. Yay, electronics. Yay, yay, yay. Guys, I think it's about time to get in the car and... Take a little trip. Maybe see some trees, some green things. What are these green things you speak of? This weekend, on 
plug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand. Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams, getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. How to deal with someone who says that's so gay? Turn it around. Did your mom cut the crust off your peanut butter and jelly sandwich? That is so gay. Oh, yeah? How would you like it if I said that so guy who makes fun of other people's sandwiches mostly because he's secretly jealous of them and who also has ketchup on his face? Okay, geez. Sorry. Wait, do I seriously have ketchup on me? When you say that's so gay, do you realize what you say? Knock it off. Learn more at thinkbeforeyouspeak.com. Brought to you by Glisten and the Ad Council. The odds of a young girl being discovered by an industry insider while singing to herself pumping gas? One in 300 million. The odds of the daughter of a clergyman from Severn, Maryland, spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? One in 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of selling over 40 million records? One and 800,000. The odds of this musician and performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks, it's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks in the Ad Council. My name is Vivian Moreno. I'm a mother, and this is how I live united. People in my community are struggling to make ends meet right now, and it concerns me. So I volunteer with United Way to help people get back their earned income tax credit. This is important to me because in the last seven years, it has helped put food on my table and pay my bills. I want everyone to have that same benefit. This year alone, I was able to help over 175 families get back over $243,000 in federal and state income tax. You should hear people when they find out. They say, oh, I'm going to buy a house, or I'm going to take my kids on a special trip. And I still feel like I get back more than I give just by volunteering. My name is Vivian Moreno. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear this shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. Check, change, control. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. 
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.